Hello and welcome to episode one of Tea Takes. Thomasina's Tea Takes. Tommy's Tea Takes. I don't know what I'm going to end up landing on. All I know is it's probably going to be a really aggressive alliteration of some kind. Um, I'm Thomasina, and as you can probably tell, I am just getting over a pretty nasty cold, but I decided that I was going to not use it as an excuse because this is something that I've been meaning to do for a while and has really excited me. So let's do it. Um, I am a actor and a Twitch streamer. You can find me on twitch.tv slash Thomasina every weekday, uh, streaming mostly games, but who knows, it can be pretty much anything at any time. Same as this podcast. I don't have a particular direction or formula that I want to do. Um, it's most likely going to be weekly, most likely going to be either released on or recorded on Tuesdays or both. At least that's the plan. And it's pretty much just going to be whatever I feel like talking about, sharing my thoughts on um, things that I want to get off my chest that I don't necessarily want to spend a whole lot of time chatting about on stream. I'll more than likely talk a lot about general streamer news, gaming news, content creation, and things like that. So without further ado, let's get into it. The main thing that I am excited about, really, that I've seen on streamer Twitter and, and streamer spaces in general, is that evidently TwitchCon 2023 will take place in, not San Diego, but Las Vegas, Nevada. And people have a lot to say about this. Uh, and it kind of struck me as odd at first because the, the kind of immediate knee-jerk reaction was that it was just such a bad idea that, you know, I mean, Vegas. Vegas is known for just partying and, and doing stupid stuff. And also, there was this kind of gotcha attitude about it because, oh, look, Twitch went and banned gambling and now they're going to have TwitchCon in Las Vegas. And I think all of that is valid. I think that, you know, there are there's as many risks in a city like Las Vegas as there are in a place like San Diego. I mean, there were there were parts of San Diego that were just I've been to two TwitchCons um, in my life would have been more if it weren't for the pandemic, but there were some really not pretty uh, areas around the convention that just were not, were not safe, I guess is a better way to put it. I just, I definitely felt unsafe in a lot of areas of San Diego. I have had a completely different experience having been to Vegas, I think more times than I can count now in my lifetime. Um, because it's just it's a it's a wide open city. Everything that you could possibly need is is pretty darn close. Um, you know, ninety percent of the time, if you're going to go out, here, here's what I'm most excited about. Here's why I'm stoked on TwitchCon 2023 being in Las Vegas. Number one is that when you have an event like that in Vegas, absolutely every resource you could possibly imagine is there and available to you. It's more than likely going to be in, I mean, and I hope, I should say that I hope, I hope it's not going to be in the convention center of Las Vegas. Uh, I've been there before and it's great. It's, it's a great facility. It's just, you know, way off of the strip and 
you know, kind of the well-populated and, and happening areas of Vegas. But um, what I'm hoping for is that it's in just one of the hotels that has, uh, you know, the kind of space to accommodate it on the strip. That's what I'm hoping for, because, you know, there's just these massive, massive facilities that house all sorts of, of businesses and performance venues and hotels. You know, the, the concept of being able to, you know, attend a panel at TwitchCon and, you know, go down to the walk the floor and go to a meet and greet and, and those kinds of things and then turn around and without even walking outside, just head up the elevator to my hotel room. Like that's that is usually the convention experience in Las Vegas. And oh my gosh, I'm sorry, but San Diego was just a pain. The the convention center, it, it's fantastic, but finding somewhere to stay that is that is close enough to that area of San Diego is is hell. It's always gonna be several blocks away. It's it's not gonna be easy to get to get there if, you know, you actually are on a budget. Uh, or you're just going to be, you know, spending a whole bunch of money on Ubers or, or taxis. And that goddamn train. If you have ever been, I, I guess, to any event at the, the San Diego Convention Center, you know about that flippin' train. It picks the absolute least opportune times to roll through and completely block off the, the crosswalk from... Just, you know, that street that's closest to the entrance to the convention center and, and just the rest of the whole damn world. It's completely inconvenient. And you've got just mass groups of gamers sitting there just waiting to be able to cross the street. Or, you know, you get to walk like a mile, half a mile, whatever, down the street to where there's a, a pedestrian bridge. But it's just... it I... I don't know that I could actually list all the ways that it was inconvenient um, to to travel to San Diego, stay in San Diego, and, you know, be in, in that convention center. But the level of comfort that I have in Vegas, in, in multiple locations in Vegas, and just the ease at which people can navigate the city, um, I actually think it's a really great idea. I think it's probably really cost-effective. I can't imagine what it costs to rent out the convention center in San Diego when you have, I mean, a fraction of the attendance that you would normally expect. I mean, I had a really great time at this last TwitchCon, but it was pretty obvious how how big of a difference there was between the number of people they expected to show up and the number of people that did. It was comical uh, the amount of time every morning. I mean, watching people snake back and forth this massive warehouse, basically, because they've, you know, put up all of these bars to try and lay out, you know, how the line is going to zigzag and, and hold people back, basically, for, for admittance because they just expected this massive amount of people. And it's just like one guy zigzagging back and forth through this huge space. And it was like that every single morning. I mean, there were times where I wanted to be at like a, a 9 a.m. panel or whatever. And 
I was there right away and, and there was just no hassle, no crowd waiting to get in. Comparing that to the last TwitchCon I went to, which was 2019, which was the last time they had an in-person TwitchCon, it was a massive difference. And I don't know exactly how much of that is related to the pandemic. I'm sure a, a good portion of it is. Um, I think there is probably at least a little bit that is to do with Twitch PR in general. Some questionable decisions that Twitch or Twitch's overlords have decided to make that kind of has pushed people away from the platform in general. Or at least pushed them away long enough to not be able to... to Get people to not be able to justify the expense of going out to a physical convention like TwitchCon. And basically all of that was just to make the point that it can't possibly be worth the expense of that size of a facility. Las Vegas, however, I can only imagine that it's a lot more feasible and this is pretty much why I don't anticipate them deciding to use the actual convention center in Vegas that's off the strip. I'm pretty sure they're going to choose something that is somewhat smaller but still accommodating to everything that they want to do in one of the, the huge hotels, the MGM Grand, something like that, um, on the strip. And being in a city like Vegas, I mean, there's people, I mean, Vegas is like a bucket list city. You want to go there, you want to walk the strip, you want to gamble, you want to do all sorts of things. You want to go to the massive Taco Bell that will serve you alcohol. You want to be able to have an open drink of alcohol on the streets. I mean, that's, that is totally allowed in Las Vegas. I, I think the attractions of the city alone are going to make people think twice and go, wait a minute, maybe it's worth giving TwitchCon a try this year because even if the convention's not any fun, I'm still in flipping Las Vegas. I think it's going to go fairly well for them and I am definitely looking forward to it. Just the thought of the sheer number of things that someone can do in Las Vegas if they want to go out, have a good time with friends, with people that they haven't met in person before. That that has always been the absolute highlight of any TwitchCon is getting to meet the people that you're already close with and go out and have a drink with them. Go see a show. Go go do something fun. All of these like meetups and parties and things. Not to just continue ragging on San Diego, but I think I had a really hard time going out and socializing at TwitchCon, specifically in San Diego, because there wasn't really anywhere to go except for bars and sometimes like little dance clubs in the gaslight or the, the, the gas lamp quarter of San Diego. It, you know, just one street with these teeny tiny bars that always have to have music on at at a deafening volume i'm like how how is anyone i i was frequently wondering how anyone was having any fun because it was like yes we're, we're drinking and we're together but i can't hear a goddamn word you're saying i have to scream and my throat is getting shredded you know it's 11 12 1 a.m and i want to get up in the morning and go to this con and it just it's miserable but you do it anyway because of the you know the moments of fun i think there's a lot more comfortable fun 
to be had in Vegas. Some of the bars are a little more chill. Half the time they're in in smack dab in the center of of an entire hotel. There's restaurants and, you know, I think there's a lot more opportunity for people to actually connect and hang out outside of the con, get to know each other, meet new people, and have a good time. The other Twitch and Twitch streaming related thing that I have seen talked about a lot recently is this conversation around mature content filters when streaming. And I think that I have a little bit of a, a hot take on it, honestly. The the assertion originally, and, and this is what people have actually taken issue with, the assertion is that by having the mature content filter on, you are cutting yourself off from a potential audience. You know, it's it's interrupting if your stream is in any sort of like embedded website, it's a hindrance to people, you know, people have to actually click through and it adds a barrier to someone viewing your stream. And I think that that is absolutely correct. The other point that was brought up that has ticked a whole bunch of people off is that it's unnecessary if all you're doing is playing a video game and swearing sometimes and talking about things that aren't strictly child friendly. And so a lot of folks are taking issue with it, saying people are going to take this advice and they're going to turn off this filter and then they're going to talk about generals on stream and they're going to get in trouble because some kid decided to watch it and then repeat it to his mom and mom went full Karen on Twitch and got them removed from the platform. And uh, th there's also some other uh, pretty valid statements of people saying, I just plain don't want people who are under 18 in my stream at all. I don't, I don't want to entertain minors. I don't want to converse with minors. I don't want to interact at all. Um, which I think is is completely valid. I think in many cases, I mean, we all know that th there's truly no preventing a minor from seeing 18 plus content if they're determined to or even mildly interested in doing it. Uh, it that button is hardly going to stop anyone who is interested in a, a stream that has it on. So I, I can't honestly say that I put a whole lot of credence into that. Uh, at minimum, it, I guess, indicates to the underage viewer that, hey, you are not really supposed to be here. So maybe don't, you know, talk about your age in chat or, or make it obvious. But it's seen as this kind of level of bulletproof protection for the streamer that, oh, well, now I can say or do all kinds of nasty stuff. And even if a minor sees it, I can't get in trouble for them seeing it. I can't be held accountable for that. And I would kind of go back to the original point um, that I, I mean, frankly, I kind of agree with uh, the guy whose name escapes me now. Um, but the guy who kind of originally brought this up and is getting a little bit torn to shreds for it right now. Twitch is a 13 plus platform. That's the, that is the demographic that has has been designated as appropriate 
to be using Twitch and viewing Twitch streams. Um, and if you sit and think about the kinds of content that you see in PG-13 movies, I can't speak to the specifics, but I mean, there's a, a specific allotment of, of F-bombs. There's usually lots of innuendo that would fly over a child's head, but get a chuckle out of the parent that's sitting and watching and sort of a captive audience to something that they have no interest in. I think it is a little bit of a waste of energy to insist on having this filter on that is going to cause trouble for who you're recommended to or how widely your, your stream is pushed on the platform and elsewhere and add that extra barrier to someone actually putting eyes on your stream. It, it feels pretty needless. I mean, the type of content that should be behind an 18 plus filter isn't behind an 18 plus filter. I, I don't think I even need to name drop. There are content creators out there that I, I'm not even detracting from. I don't mean to suggest that they, they shouldn't be on the platform or are doing anything wrong. Uh, but these creators who are creating pretty highly sexualized content, those creators are not using this 18 plus filter. Um, because in many ways, they are intentionally towing the line between 18 plus content and 18 and under friendly content. Personally, I think that the 18 plus mature content filter as a feature on Twitch was never intended for streamers who just hang out and make some dick jokes and swear a lot. I don't think it was a means of protecting young eyes and ears from somewhat adult conversations. You know, I would say that it's specifically for those instances where there is straight up intercourse or or gore or something truly by definition not suitable for viewers under 18 stuff like that that can appear in video games this this filter predates this just chatting wave of of change in the content on on Twitch you know this was this was when it was pretty solely uh, gaming and sometimes other stuff. And there were games that would have surprise sex scenes that streamers weren't ready for and were worried that they could get in trouble for. And I think that if you're playing a game that you maybe anticipate something like that happening, you would want to flip that on. You would want to have that, or even going into a game that you don't know whether or not it's going to have mature themes like that. I mean, if a game has a high enough rating, you can probably guess that there's going to be something that is not suitable for younger viewers and be able to flip that filter on. Because there was a time where Twitch did have to clarify that full frontal nudity um, and, and other kinds of adult images, while they were not allowed on stream... 
if they were a a part of a game you were showcasing to your audience and if it was a part of the story and not a situation where you've gone completely out of your way to do some side quest where there is some totally pornographic scene that you can opt into and you know goof around in then you could have nudity on your stream it was it was within context of the the content that you were streaming those i think are the types of situations where you would genuinely want to have this 18 plus filter on and i think for years streamers have been using it as blanket permission to have dirty nasty fun conversations with other adults on their streams without any sort of fear of facing repercussions for a minor engaging and, and hearing what they were talking about on stream i personally have never ever heard of somebody getting in trouble for swearing too much on stream without this filter on I would love to hear Twitch clarify on the circumstances in which it should be used. I think that's the really the biggest issue is that no one really has a definition. You know, is it like strictly PG-13 guidelines where you can say fuck exactly once per hour or or whatever those guidelines are, you know, or else you have to have that filter on. There there's just no real guidelines as to when you should or should not be using that filter. And for that reason especially, I really don't think that this guy deserves the amount of flack that he's getting. I mean, people are flinging accusations that, you know, he's doing this intentionally to get a bunch of people banned and removed from the platform to eliminate competition. And what's funny is I, I had the thought, I'm sitting there looking at it, and he's, you know, he's saying all this stuff about it kind of, the filter getting in the way of your discoverability and i'm looking at all these people going mm, nope i'm gonna leave it on thanks and going well gee that's some competition eliminated for me <laughs> as as a person who just, just does not use the filter like if these droves of streamers want to even after being informed about it continue to kind of hinder their own discoverability i'm not going to argue with you about it you know if if it's truly helping me out then then fantastic uh but but i genuinely don't think there was any ill intent in it i think that as usual people got way too far in their feelings about it deciding they're being attacked in some way it's this, this instant knee-jerk reaction of like you're doing this thing on purpose just to hurt me when the person you're talking to has no idea who you are. Never had any intention of messing with you. And and honestly, I'm certain that 90% of these people don't even feel that way. They are just ruffling feathers to get extra engagement. And that seems to be the main focus, especially on Twitter right now. It is all about winding up on somebody's recommended feed getting as many views as possible, likes and retweets, the, the amount of polls that I see people putting up on Twitter for absolutely nothing, just, just inconsequential, like, what should I have for breakfast today? And, and questions like, 
I mean, on stream or Twitter, the quickest way to get me to scroll as far away from your fucking tweet as I can possibly get is to start your tweet with, does anyone else or am I the only one who thinks? I mean, God damn it, no, streamer 9098. You're not the only person who thinks that follower-only chat on a sub-10 concurrent viewer stream is a bullshit, stupid idea. We all think that. We have all always thought that. And no amount of tweeting about it is going to change the small handful of people who think that it's a good idea, think that it's a good way to farm followers, forcing people to follow. We have all had this discussion about it over and over and over again. It's sort of mind-blowing that it does seem to be this really easy form of engagement is just talk about the exact same subject over and over again because everyone will talk and and give you their opinion when it's the same conversation how many times can you say the same thing in fact maybe that's what i need to tweet is Am I the only one who is fucking bored of the follower-only chat conversation? Stop talking about it. My goodness. Anyway, that is probably all that I really have to say about the streaming content creation industry in general, the state of it today. Um, the other thing that I did want to talk about, I have, of course, been watching The Last of Us. HBO series. Um, I did finally, after a lot of procrastination and distractions, uh, get to episode three, which everyone was talking about. I managed to avoid the bulk of the spoilers, but I had a little bit of an idea of what I was going to get into. And I was actually really surprised by the negative reaction i think overwhelmingly it was positive because it was it was a really amazing episode it was an amazing story that was told and told very well i did find that the spoiler alert beginning of the romance between these two characters it's it seemed a little rushed seemed a tiny bit contrived um, and I'm not sure how much of that was, was it truly feeling like it was going too fast or it was me not really picking up on the desperation of these two characters to have a real interaction with another human being. Um, obviously, as Bill, Bill was a character that he was so happy to be alone he he says in the episode he did not like people and was was sort of excited for the opportunity to not have to deal with people but all of a sudden he's just ready to go and and i thinking back on it it did feel like he was surprising himself with how eager he was but it did feel a little bit fast going from pointing a gun at Frank's head while he's halfway out of a hole and saying, I, I can't possibly feed you and, and protect you without expecting the horde of people who need feeding and protecting to come running for my aid. And I, I won't be able to handle that. I, I, I can't do that. 
it, it seemed a little too easy to convince him. But once we were beyond that point, it was an easy relationship, chemistry between these two actors, both incredible actors. And it was a really lovely story. And I was especially invested and on the edge of my seat by the end, because again, major spoiler alert, I mean, it's been more than 10 years, maybe, since I played the original Last of Us video game. I could hardly remember a single thing about Bill. Um, I'd forgotten all about Frank. And I had no recollection. I, I knew that Bill had significance. I had an idea of the character. I, I knew enough to go, oh, Nick Offerman, the absolute perfect person to play this role. I knew that he was a pretty hardcore survivalist type, but I didn't remember interactions with him. I didn't remember if all we did was, you know, show up at his place and he was already gone. Um, so I couldn't actually remember if we see Bill before or after he dies or, or disappears. So by the end, I'm starting to think, I'm like, oh my gosh, if if he follows through with this thing with Frank, you know, I I would be going with him. If, if, if it were me in his shoes, I would be going with him. And I didn't remember if Bill was alive and well uh, when we saw him in the game. Um, and having not been able to remember Frank as a character at all, by the time we get to the scene where Bill is in the middle of the street fighting these raiders and gets pretty seriously injured and, and Frank is tending to him, I started to wonder, I was like, oh gosh, are we going to lose Bill? And is it going to swap to a, a Frank, you know, are, are Joel and Ellie going to arrive at this house and there's going to be a, a hardened uh, survivalist version of Frank who has taken up all of the instructions and things that he's learned from Bill and is has become very good at uh, in respect of of Bill's memory, um, which I was kind of anticipating as being a really cool twist. It was not what ended up happening, um, and I I love the story as as it all played out. Um, obviously, very tragic, but still just beautiful. The focus on humanity true humanity just as a concept is always what I have loved about The Last of Us. We saw it in the first couple of episodes when, you know, when Ellie is asking, I mean, does it bother you to think that they were a person once? And everyone seems really to take consideration of that aspect. Um, there's the scene where, you know, Ellie sees the, the downed plane and realizing, oh my gosh, a kid born after an apocalypse like this would never have sat on a plane. I mean, I've I've had that experience before. It, it I had not been on a plane since I was maybe four or five years old when I finally took a trip again in my early 20s. And looking around at people who are already asleep, reading books as if this is a totally normal routine thing. And I'm sitting there, I'm feeling the engines and, you know, as it actually starts to lift on, on takeoff, just, it's a totally different experience when it's brand new to you. 
or has never happened before. And the realization of this, this kid who sees something fantastic and, and magical in something that used to be just totally routine in Joel's life, those, those little things and those little realities of a post-apocalyptic scenario like that, that has always been my favorite little bit of flavor in The Last of Us. It seems to take those things a little more seriously than other zombie apocalypse media. The focus is not on survival alone and, oh no, what if you get bitten and the best way to kill a zombie and stuff like that. It's it's really about the effect on the characters and their relationships and their traumas, which ties into what I really loved about episode three and specifically Bill and Frank's story in episode three. The main criticism that seems to be coming up, which I find nonsensical for a number of reasons, but the main criticism seems to be, but it didn't drive the story forward. It didn't push the main plot. It it spent so much time on this sort of side plot, this little bit of side character lore. And by the end of the episode, Joel has a, a, a car with a battery and we're good to go. And, and that could have been five minutes. Like, yeah, it could have been five minutes. It also could have been five minutes for you to read through the Last of Us wiki and know exactly what happens in the whole story. If you want to know everything that happens, that information is available to you, and you have no reason to waste time watching television series or playing video games if you put no sort of, of, of credence into the journey to get to that story, how the story unfolds. And all of this that we got in episode three served a purpose. No, it did not immediately and, and directly push the story forward in a neat little line on a, on a railroad track that lands in Joel getting a battery. In fact, I think it's pretty intentional that the battery becomes the least important physical item by the end of the episode. You don't even see the damn thing once Joel has put it together and put it in the vehicle. You see the, the ingredients and the pieces of it in the refrigerator, and that is it. What we spent the most time looking at by the time we got back to present day, when Ellie and Joel are in Bill's house kind of rummaging around, we see the plate with the now decomposing uh, dinner on it. We see the wine glasses and the wine bottle. We see a potted plant. We see some of Frank's paintings. We see Ellie find the gun in the drawer. All of those items now have a story. All of those items would have been present in the house whether we knew the story or not, but we wouldn't have known. And the reality is that while we get to see the story of Bill and Frank, every single house on that street in that town had a, a Bill and a Frank in some way. There were people and families who lived there and had relationships and had 
moments that were important to them that involved dishes and items. Props. Dirty, dingy, discarded props that are all over every single scene in the entire series. In every single scene in any zombie apocalypse related movie or TV show. So many, in fact, that we become completely desensitized to it. It becomes just generic, run-of-the-mill apocalypse scenery. Dirty, dingy stuff. Broken stuff laying around. And instead of tuning it out and glossing over all of it, letting it become just static in the background when Joel and Ellie get into this house, the entire story gets played out in little glimpses around, leading up to when they leave in the car and that song plays on the radio. Now all of it has significance. It reminds us that every little bit of scenery that these characters pass through was once a living space. And every zombie, every clicker, was once a person with hopes, dreams, feelings, loves, hates, the full spectrum. The series is taking its time driving home that reality of an apocalypse scenario like this. It's so easy to just jump straight to the action and focus on pure survival because pure survival is compelling. That, that action adventure, those thrilling moments of, oh no, he almost got me, I almost got bitten, and, and I got scratched, what, it, what if it is a bite? Um, or there's a zombie closing in on the woman I love, and I, I got bitten, so I'm gonna sacrifice myself to make sure that no one else can get hurt. It's it, all of the easy tropes, right? That, that even when they do delve into something emotional, they're still so surface level. This is like, remember the world for what it was. The, the world as we know it is gone. It's been gone for so long that there are people living and walking this earth that never experienced it. Like a freaking, I don't know how old Ellie is supposed to be, but this preteen, teenager, whatever, that has never sat on an airplane, never even seen an airplane in the sky. And talk about human, this kid loses her shit because she found some tampons. Like, how is that for human reality? Things that no one really thinks of, you know, besides people who menstruate. And considering this is episode three, I mean, we had plenty of time in episode one with flashbacks to the, the day it all happened, Joel's life with his daughter and his brother prior to everything turning to shit. There's, there's plenty of opportunity for telling stories that aren't the exact mainstream plot. I feel like that criticism of episode three is going to have all of the wind taken out of its sails as the season progresses, because I feel like we're going to actually see a lot of these stories being told, these little vignettes of light, the life before or the life during that we get to really see the humanity as people are processing this thing that's happening in the world around them. And I'm sorry, but if you're offended by stories being told 
in this series based on an IP like The Last of Us, if you're if you're offended by extra narrative being added or different narrative being added to a video game that you have played before, again, what is the point of watching the series? Were you just expecting to watch a hell? How much is HBO uh, paying to to create this series? Because I will play through The Last of Us on stream for half that. I will go out and I will buy a damn PlayStation, you know, or wait till the remaster comes out for PC. I'll fucking play through the same exact shit that you're expecting to see live on stream whenever you want. I won't even talk. You know, you want to just see the whole story play out the exact same way? What it, What is the point of watching the HBO series if nothing is different? It was interesting. It was compelling. It was well done. And boohoo. And I think that is just about all that I have to talk about here on episode one of Tea Takes. Um, I am Thomas Cena. You can catch me live on twitch.tv slash thomasina every weekday. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Stay tuned to find out ways that you can submit questions and give feedback on this podcast. I am brand new to all of this, so it is going to be a work in progress for a little while. But thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed.